Good morning. Can you hear me yet? Yeah, there we go. I was touched by that video. Um, you know, Scripture says there's no greater love than when a man would lay down his life for his friend. And I don't know if there's anything more Christ-like than what our soldiers do for each other and, and for us. And I feel like I miss that a lot because I'm so busy with life. And, uh, but, uh, you know, again, just really grateful for our military and all that they do. So, uh, so Dave and I were talking this morning. This job's not easy, you know, that Bill does every week. Uh, organizing a service, and we both walked in here with our tongues hanging out. Um, so I appreciate Bill and all that he's done. Uh, he's been teaching a, on a series on the family. And so last week, he talked about the power of yes and no. And uh, I think in regard to finances mainly, but that uh, yes and no, the discipline of yes and no, uh, either bring bondage or freedom. And uh, if there's a combination of wisdom and with that, you make the right choice uh, in regard to yes and no, then you'll thrive and live. But if we make poor choices and, and we're, we're more foolish, then uh, we'll end up in trouble. And that's also true for our children. And so I think that's been sort of the thrust of this series. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about uh, hope. And before we get to the scripture, real quick, I want you to think about where you are in regard to hope. Now, the question's purposefully general, um, but as you kind of reflect on your life, uh, looks like most people in here are older. Uh, where are you with your hopes? Have you hoped that something would happen that never, never did? Um, was there something that you hoped for that was actually realized and you're really grateful for it? Uh, do you still have hopes, things you're waiting on? Uh, uh, that, that you, you hope may come to fruition? Uh, have you been heartbroken? Have you hoped for something so much uh, only to find out that it would never happen and you found yourself uh, heartbroken? Uh, life is a lot about hope. And uh, we're going to talk about hope uh, from Peter's perspective in First Peter. Um, but consider, consider the idea of hope. Dave, I'm going to have you read First. Peter 1, 3 through 9. It's in the bulletin if you want to follow yeah, with me. you can me. follow it. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is already to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a, while, a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thanks. Let me say a prayer real quick. Lord, thanks for your scripture. Thank you Though we've not seen you. We love you. And though we've not seen you, we believe in you. We need 
um, you and those things that you offer us that uh, really build hope deep within. Uh, life's a struggle. Uh, it rains on the just and the unjust. And we're grateful that you've offered us uh, hope uh, by uh, meeting us here on this planet, suffering what we suffer, and uh, rising from the dead. I pray that as we look at these verses and, and consider who you are in light of who we are, that uh, we would be encouraged, that our hearts would be warmed, um, our thoughts would be enlightened, and that we would leave uh, full of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Peter. Peter wrote this passage. I don't know if you know much about Peter, one of the 12 disciples. Uh, Peter started out with a very small life. He was a fisherman, blue-collar guy, living on the Sea of Galilee. His probably best hope in life was to own an extra boat, you know. Maybe get a second boat, live a nice, comfortable life here uh, uh, fishing, uh, die in peace. That's not a bad dream for your life. I think maybe we're like that in, in, in some ways. But the thing that knocked Peter completely off course, that forced his life in a, an unpredictable prediction, was the day that he met Jesus Christ. And suddenly his world grew beyond the Sea of Galilee, beyond fishing, to a vision that was much larger than he could have ever imagined, and that would lead him far beyond his home. And I believe he was motivated by a hope that was explained to him through Jesus that gave him the courage even to die. Remarkable. A man comfortable, small-minded, meets Jesus, encounters him, sacrifices everything, ultimately to die in Rome on a cross. I think tradition has that he was crucified upside down. Um, so that's Peter, the guy that's writing to these people right here 2,000 years ago. They're in Asia Minor, a bunch of new followers of Jesus in this region. It's polytheistic. People worship other gods. Uh, the Roman Empire really puts a lot of political pressure on people to sort of maintain order. There's a lot of persecution. In the first two or three hundred years of the Christian church, a lot of people were martyred and died simply because of, of what they believed in. So how do we then, in 2014, apply what he's telling these people 2,000 years ago? Because, I don't know, probably, was there anybody that was punched in the mouth last week because they voice their belief in Jesus Christ or <laughs> thrown in jail. Uh, in the West, we're relatively safe here from persecution. We might get a raised eyebrow. We might be criticized through the media or maybe through friends or talked about. Um, but overall, we're relatively safe, which is nice. Uh, so the, the question remains, how does this apply to us? Now, I know that I think right now in uh, Somalia or one of the, the northern African countries, a woman's about to be killed because she converted and married a Christian man. Uh, I also read a story recently where there's an Iranian man who was beating his wife and daughter because they converted. Then he converted to the Christian faith, and now the whole family is being persecuted. So it might apply more directly to people uh, on the other side of the world. But what about you and me? We get up, we go to work every day, we take in information, we take care of our kids, we you know, entertain ourselves. Can this mean anything to us? And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to apply it to us in three ways. I think for us, the pain and the struggle is internal and much less external. And lest you think that internal struggles aren't powerful, 
I want you to consider the consequences of your thoughts and ideas. Um, Thoughts and ideas actually lead some people to suicide. I had a friend who, uh, back in Texas, ended up almost bankrupt, was... Uh, decided he wasn't happy with his wife. The idea of being unhappy moved him in another direction. And he ended up in such a bad situation that he took his own life. Ideas about body image move uh, people to, to eating disorders. So what we carry around in our mind is very powerful. I've always thought if people struggle with depression, certainly it could be chemical. Um, but that has to also be combined with the way that we view the world. Uh, what, what goes on in our mind, and if you think about it, you're constantly carrying on a conversation with yourself. You're telling yourself things all the time. And so it's important that we listen to what it is we're telling ourselves because those thoughts, that information leads to either joy and hope or it can lead to depression and despair. And the great thing about what Peter's saying here is that he's presenting some information that if we can digest it and if we can carry these thoughts around, and in faith live those, I believe it produces a tremendous amount of joy and hope. And we can walk in that, and in that we can love folks and give to other people. Um, okay, so three ideas uh, I think that are, in general, characteristic kind of of our culture and that we battle with. And you can see them in your outline there. Uh, these are the three. First, that we're trained to get, uh, which is basically self-gratification. Uh, secondly, somewhere along the way, and I think you see this in secular society, there's this motivation, particularly in education, and I'm very pro-education, but to, go, to do good for, for no reason. <laughs> you do good, you die, and it's over, right? Um, and then uh, finally, I think if you've experienced anything uh, that would make you question the existence of God or his goodness, it's real easy to move into fatalism. To believe that God's not there, that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't care. And man, that is a thought or an idea that would lead anybody to despair. So trained uh, to get uh, self-gratification. So I started learning self-gratification at a young age uh, and how I was to get things. And elementary, junior high, all the way through college, it really culminated in college because when I landed on the college campus, uh, I needed to be uh, in the best social club. You know, that was about me. I needed to date an attractive woman, kind of an extension of me. Uh, I needed to make good grades uh, because it would prove how smart I was. I need, you know, and, and, and subtly and not so subtly, um, I learned that I needed to beat the people that I was competing with. And I measured myself by comparison. So that's by looking at the person on my left and the person on my right. And I just heard a sermon recently by Andy Stanley. And the title of it was Living in the Land of Ur. And uh, it's a great sermon, uh, and so simply put, but he said, we all live in the land of, of Ur. And that is, we need to be prettier than, we need to be richer than, we need to be better than. And before we know it, the thrust of our life is about comparison and being more than uh, the people around us. Now, here's the tough thing about that game. Uh, if I'm better than this person, I feel pretty good about myself. But if I look to my right, and this person over here is better than I am, then I feel terrible about myself. That's a bad philosophy of living. But yet, I think Peter's message speaks to us here. It's a struggle, 
It's painful. And to deal with this is a sort of uh, persecution. And uh, what was I going to say? Solomon addresses this issue in Ecclesiastes, and he says this. And if you think that you're better than most or smarter than most or more talented than most, you weren't smarter or more talented than this guy. He was the greatest king of his day. He had 300 wives, a couple of hundred concubines. He built more cities and buildings than anybody else. He was the most educated. People came from around the world. And Solomon's answer to this life of comparison uh, is summed up in a proverb. And he says this, that if uh, you're trying to fill both of your hands, that strategy for life will end in misery. Better is contentment and tranquility with one hand full than misery with two hands that are full. And I think that's the American philosophy, right? Two hands that are full. And so I think Peter's words here about hope counter that philosophy. Let's move on. The next one, giving without a purpose. I read a book in my 20s by Albert Camus, the French existentialist. Maybe you read it in some English lit class uh, called The Plague. Really interesting book. These people in this town in northern Africa are beset by this plague. Uh, People are dying left and right. It really is life sort of pushed into a microcosm where suddenly the pressure is building and everyone has to respond to the situation. So there's a whole host of characters and as they realize they're isolated, stuck, people are suffering and dying, people make different choices. Some people steal to survive and they let people die, they neglect others. Um, There's a minister that tells everybody, he's trying to make sense of it all, I guess for his own uh, processing, and he says, this is God's judgment on you, that's why you're dying. Uh, So he kind of condemns everyone. The heroes in the book decide that they're going to help people despite the difficulty. And, uh, and basically, they come to the conclusion, it's said in the final chapters, that there's no God, there's no afterlife. But the most heroic thing that a person can do is to try to do good and help others, but really it's for no reason. It's meaningless. Because once you're dead, you're dead. It counts for nothing. Now, I would put... Uh, that label on most of secular society today. They're living off the moral capital of our Christian history, which are the values that Jesus promoted, but without a God. I mean, where do we get ideas of justice and tolerance and love and grace and mercy? They came from Jesus. But now in modern society, and especially secular society, we've pushed God out. We've embraced those values, but it counts for nothing. It's meaningless. They're like saints without a God. And I think the end of that philosophy, though as tempting as it might be, if you're not experiencing God directly or you believe that the Bible's a false history, uh, is despair. I mean, that's tough, right? I'm going to do good, but it means nothing. Uh, I admire the effort, but I still think that because of its hopelessness, because there's no future, that uh, it's a tough position to hold. All right, the third one. Uh, death is a dead end. I read another book. Uh, you may have seen the movie Sophie's Choice with Meryl Streep. Uh, it's about a young man who went to Duke University, moved out to New York. He was going to write the great American novel. He runs into this woman, Sophie, who was a Polish Catholic and suffer, suffered during the Second World War in, in Auschwitz. And uh, kind of the collision of worlds is Stingo, this young Duke graduate's naivety and idealism suddenly running into this woman that has suffered more than he can conceive of. And if you know the story at already saw the movie, there comes a point for Sophie as she reveals her history to Stingo where when she was at Auschwitz, 
uh, she was forced to make a choice, and it was Sophie's choice, and that was she had to choose between her two children. Uh, one of the guards said, you keep one, I send the other off. And when she had to make that choice, she knew that she was choosing that one child would die and one child would live. Now, if you know William Styron, the writer, uh, he, he's a bit of an existentialist too, and, and really that position is an argument against a good God. Why in the world, and you hear this in the culture all the time now, would God make anybody make that choice? I mean, God cannot, God is nowhere. He's left us. He does, he, if he exists, he's not good because he's not intervening. I heard another story uh, of a, a training camp story from the Second World War where um, a child was actually uh, killed and kind of put on display and the writer asked the question, where is God in this? And the counter question, and which I think is a fair one, is not where was God, but where was man? And it's interesting to me that we put on to God the consequences of our uh, independence onto God and we blame him when really the situation that we find ourselves in is God's fault. I mean, is, is uh, our fault and God has chosen to intervene. All right, so three very, very challenging views of the world that I think we deal with. Um, gratification, uh, just absurdity, and then finally, fatalism. How depressed are you right now? <laughs> yeah, well, I got some good news for you. Uh, Paul offers us some counters to these sorts of worldviews. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might say that you've you don't think in these terms. Or, yeah, I used to think that way, but I've been delivered. But my guess is that we go back to these in moments. That when we really suffer, um, when we really can't make sense of our lives, that we go back to these sorts of thoughts about God. And there's an internal battle that goes on. And so I don't pretend that we've all moved completely away from this. But Peter offers us um, some answers to it in this passage. So... Here's what Peter has to say to us. First of all, it's in your outline that we have a reason to rejoice in this passage, a purpose for which to suffer. And finally, we have a place to go. I'm going to tell you that those three uh, promises and ideas are life giving, joy filling. And man, they give us hope. So let's look at the, the first one, a reason to rejoice. Peter says this. In all, these, uh, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. And he's referring back to the earlier verses. In all of this, what he's referring to is the resurrection. This inheritance that we have. Salvation through Jesus. And then finally, the promise one day that Jesus will be revealed. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always had an underdeveloped image of what this promise looked like. That the resurrected Christ somehow promised me an afterlife. And I was like, yeah, I can kind of see that. I'll be a spirit one day, sitting on a cloud, might know some people. We're going to be singing for a long time. Um, but let me, let me try to make more concrete what it means that Jesus was resurrected and what that promise looks like. After Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he appeared to people. Actually, I think it was for 60 days after, over five or 600 people. Jesus related to personally. He met some guys on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know it was Jesus. They didn't think that he was 
God or something spiritual. They just thought that he was a man. And he had a conversation with them that lasted hours. And in that conversation, their hearts burned within them. Well, here's the wonderful thing about that. After the resurrection, with a new body, life seems to be pretty similar to what we enjoy here. There's conversations, there's encouragement, there's truth, there's love, there's relationships. When Jesus was on the shore in his resurrected body, his new body, and Peter came back and he saw him from a distance, remember he recognized him, what did he do? I mean, he got so excited, he jumped in the water and swam to him. Jesus is like stoking a fire. He's got some food. He eats. Again, very tangible, real promise that the resurrected uh, Christ offers us uh, a new new life, a tangible uh, existence after this life. So we have um, something to look forward to, a reason to rejoice and to live. And that promise we can see in the resurrected Christ. Uh, We had a friend that died recently and... uh, Pretty tough. Three, three small kids. My kids knew about this. And so, you know, I don't, if you've got kids, kids, hold, no holds barred, right? So when are you going to die, Dad? I don't know. Probably in the next 40 years. Could be sooner. Well, if you die, where do you go? Am I going to see you? When am I going to die? And so, very practical information. What do we tell our children? Do we instill hope? Or do we tell them, I'm not sure? Who knows? And I think that now is the time, as our children grow and observe and see and ask these questions, that we need to train and be very specific about training. Tim Keller shares this example, and uh, I thought it was great. There was a minister out of Philadelphia named Donald Gray Barhouse that died, or his wife died when his daughter was really young. And uh, It says this, uh, Barnhouse was trying to help his little girl and himself process the loss of his wife and her mother. Once when they were driving, a huge moving van passed them. As it passed, the shadow of the truck swept over the car. The minister had a thought. He said something like this, would you rather be run over by a truck or would you rather be run over by the truck's shadow? And his daughter replied, well, by the shadow, of course, that's going to hurt. Uh, that can't hurt us at all. And Barnhouse replied, right, if the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive. She's more alive than we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of debt hit Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, Now, the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is but an entrance into glory. What a promise. What a message to relay to our children. And your children are going to see people pass away. We need to train them up with this sort of hope, the sort of hope that Peter's relaying here. All right. Uh, A purpose for which to suffer. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tougher. Um, the resurrected Christ has offered us a very tangible future, and we have a reason to rejoice and live. But also, he makes sense of our suffering, and I think this is where we falter at times. Uh, but the promise is in the passage that um, though you suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that the genuineness of your faith, which is greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, but all of us are in the process of faith. We're acting, living, believing, risking, sacrificing. The promise that Peter's making here is that as we do that, and as it's difficult, it's hard, there's sorrow, there's tears, but there's also joy because this faith is incredibly value. It's worth more than gold. And on the day that Christ is revealed, our faith, which will have been grown in this life, uh, will be something that honors him. And I read a, actually a commentary on this passage. And some people believe that in the passage where it says, talks about all praise, glory, and honor, which I thought would be toward Jesus, will actually be toward you. That Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And what you did, your, again, not that your works earn God's approval, but your faith in him, your belief in his goodness and love that motivated you to risk and sacrifice will be something that you're received for and also something that gives glory and honor to God. Let me read you. I, I found, uh, found this this week, and I think it's a great illustration. It engages the imagination. But what it will be like once we're in heaven and we reflect back on our lives. It's from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. If you don't know about the book, guy goes to heaven. He has a host there who's this heavenly being, and he's kind of explaining the ropes of heaven. Here's what's going on. Here's what it looks like. <clears throat> and as they're standing there, they see a parade coming toward them, and that's where the story picks up. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men who... Uh, not the spirits of men who danced in, uh, not the spirits of men who danced in scattered flowers. Then on the left and the right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. And if I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady, in who all of this was being done in whose honor all of this was being done. And I cannot remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produced in memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed across the happy grass. And if she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through her clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. There's no shame. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into a living organism. So a robe or a crown is there as much as one wears, uh, has the feature of a nose or an eye. But I've forgotten, and I only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it, I whispered to my guide. He thinks it might be Jesus. No, not at all, said he. It's someone you'll, you've never heard of. Her name on the earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golden Green. Well, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Ah, she is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on the earth are two quite different things. I mean, who are all those gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Oh, well, haven't you read your Milton a thousand liveried angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They're her sons and her daughters. Well, she must have had a very large family, sir. 
Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was the only boy that brought the meat to her back door, every girl that met her was her daughter. Well, isn't that a bit hard for their parents? No. There are those that steal others' children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lover. But it was a kind of love that made them no less true, but truer to their own wives. And how, but what, what are all these animals? A cat, two cats, a dozen cats, and all these dogs? I can't even count them, and the birds and the horses. Well, they were her beasts. Did she keep some sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit much. Every beast and bird that she came into contact with uh, had a place in her love. And in her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows into them. Yes, he said. It's like when you throw a stone into a pool. And the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where they will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It's hardly come to its full strength. But already there is enough joy in the little finger of this great saint as to awaken all the dead things in a universe. What a powerful image. And what I really like about it is that this woman wasn't married. She didn't have children. But yet there was so much life in her life because of the way that she lived out her faith on this earth. The the analogy is that it could illuminate and give life to an entire universe. What a beautiful picture of what it means to to live in faith, to live in that hope, and to trust that God is changing us and has a place for us to go. All right, and then finally, um, a place to go. And I, uh, I think focusing on the afterlife is important and having a better understanding of heaven and what God's doing is really important. One disservice we've done is that we've told people, accept Christ, you die, and you go to heaven. Sort of like a magic formula. When that is not really at all what Jesus uh, came to explain when he discussed the kingdom of God. It's not at all what the Old Testament points to. What God's doing from Genesis 1 through Revelation, he's renewing the world. Uh, Redemption is not just about individual souls, though certainly that happens. Redemption is about the restoration of all things, uh, a world that's broken, a world with calamity and and difficulty and suffering. Redemption is much bigger than you or me. And I think we've become a little bit self-focused in that I'm saved, I'm good, let's go. when redemption means a lot of things. Uh, it means redemptions of, of souls, of neighborhoods, redemption for poor countries, uh, redemption for families, redemptions for marriages. Uh, this new work, this new world that has been instigated through the death and the resurrection of Jesus is upon us. The kingdom has come. And we're to play a role in that. We're citizens of this world. Uh, we're from another country now, and we're not of this world. I want to read Revelation 21 real quick just to give you a clearer vision of what's being promised. This is John in uh, Revelation 21. The vision that he had when he was on the island of Patmos. God gave him a vision of what was to come. He said this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Get this. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as beautifully dressed, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Notice people aren't going up to heaven, but heaven's coming down to the earth. There's going to be a renewed world. That's the promise. Uh, The Garden of Eden will be restored and recovered. We'll all be citizens of this new kingdom. He goes on to say, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I love this. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. What a remarkable vision. I mean, that is hope, right? We've got a place to go. So we've got a reason to rejoice and live. Purpose for which to sacrifice and give. Our suffering makes sense. And we've got a place to go that's more real than what you and I are enjoying right now. I mean, that is, that's hope. I've got, got an amen over there. Thank you very much. Man. <laughs> I am telling you, in contrast with the first three worldviews I went over, praise God. Man, my family has hope and my kids have hope. And that's what I need to relate to them. So, which takes me right into my transition. How do we deliver our children? I'll move through this quickly. Um, basically, we do this first by modeling. Your kids will be able to sum up your life in a couple of sentences. And I can do that with my parents. I'm not going to do it right now. But, uh, you know, some people will say, yeah, such and such, uh, you know, she lived on this earth, but uh, uh, she, she constantly worried. I mean, there's going to be a dominant theme, right? Or uh, that person lived, and man, they, they really loved folks. Or that mother gave to her children. and you know, My grandmother gave to our family in extraordinary ways. That's what we say about Stacy's mother. Most remarkable grandmother I've ever seen. I mean, that's her legacy. One sentence, the greatest grandmother that ever lived. Your kids will be able to sum up your life in a few sentences. And so the question is, what are you doing now to create that one or two sentences? Are they going to say, man, my dad loved God and loved people. My dad, my, my parents in faith risked God's direction and sacri- sacrificed much for other people. Um, you know, I don't know what it is, but know that modeling is important. Stacy and I were talking the other day in the front seat and uh, it's a pretty serious conversation. And Maylin leaned forward and she goes, I can hear everything that you're saying. <laughs> We're modeling. I mean, our kids are listening to us. And it's amazing what they take in. So the first way that we relay this hope of having a reason to live, sacrifices to make, and a place to go, is by what we do day to day. It's, it's simple. It's modeling. You all know that. And secondly, we train in faith. This could be a sermon in of itself. I'm going to hit on it real quick. Uh, John Wesley, who was, started the Methodist Church, he had four components of faith. Scripture, reason, tradition, and uh, experience. He said that faith was like a stool. So I've got a stool and four legs. Tradition, reason, experience, and uh, what, was, what was the other one? Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. So as parents, the three that we can really invest in is tradition, Scripture, and reason. Pretty simple. We bring our kids to church. They learn the scripture. We read the Bible at home. They digest the scripture. Dave tells his kids 
Stories at night before they go to bed, they read the Bible. They're learning every day. They're like sponges they're taking in. That's our responsibility as parents. As we develop this hope in them, they learn to really make, uh, make these sorts of things live. Um, when it comes to tradition, the, the things that we do at church, uh, the Lord's Supper, we celebrate Easter every year. We celebrate Christmas. We have, we, we, we have weeks leading up to Good Friday. All of these things on the calendar annually um, add to our experience of, of faith, uh, the development of our faith, and we need to do this with our kids. That's why it's important to come to church. Uh, it's hard. God, I'm late most times because I'm trying to get everybody in the car. But these traditions are important. Now, here's the thing. For a lot of kids, these traditions become sort of rote and dead over time. And that's why the last component of faith, which is experience, is out of our hands. And uh, you are not going to change the heart of your child. You can train them up. You can love them. You can expose them to tradition. You can read the scripture to them. But the key component is that they have a supernatural renewing of the heart. And that comes through prayer. And so, as parents, we have to pray. And as we pray... All those things that we've invested in them, I think, will one day live. And I've heard people talk about that. I read the Bible my whole life. And then one day I started reading it and suddenly it was alive. You know, uh, my dad grew up Catholic. I, you know, I went, I'm not slamming the Catholic church. I went to Catholic mass all the time. And, and then one day I realized what they were saying. There was a life in it. There was real weight to it. And I think that's when God starts to move in people and move upon them. And so... Our responsibility is to, to train in faith, scripture. I left out reason, which is just to make their faith reasonable, and that's a whole other topic. But anyway, this is what we need to do. And in doing that, we are going to give them a reason to live, a reason to sacrifice, and a place to go. I'm going to close with one visual illustration. Um, so I, I'm a big movie guy, and I'm a dude. So I love the movie Gladiator, top five movies. Uh, on my top five movie list. The reason I think that movie registered so deeply with me is because in many ways it's a metaphor or it's, a, it's a, uh, an illustration of God's truth. And this is why. It's real simple. Um, there's a good king who's got a bad son. The good king wants the ideals and the dream of Rome to be upheld. But the bad son has moved in and he's trying to take over. And actually, he does some terrible things. He murders his own father, played by Comatus, if you, or Comatus was his name, if you remember. And then he actually, because Maximus has been blessed by the king to take over, he actually has Maximus's family executed so that he can reign in power and move the nation of Rome under his umbrella of influence, which would mean glory for himself. So selflessness is lost. Equality is lost. The balance of Rome in this new age of equality and care and all these things that make a, a, a democracy work are, are, are being threatened. So a great conflict ensues. And I love this. The thing that drives Maximus through the film is that he's answered these three, these three questions, or three points. He's got a reason to live. He's got a purpose for which to sacrifice and suffer and a place to go. And those three things are summarized in the final uh, few minutes of the film. So I want to show you that, and then I'll, I'll wrap us up. You want to play that? All right. 
reason to live, a sacrifice to make, and a place to go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we uh, have hope because uh, you didn't forget us. And uh, it's in the resurrection of your son that we've been offered life. And thank you that uh, it gives us clear direction, gives us purpose, people for which to lay our lives down, uh, and ultimately a place to go that's not cartoon-like or a fairy tale, but it's more real than anything that we can imagine. And we know that uh, this offer and this hope has been made in your son, Jesus, who died for us. And we're incredibly grateful. So fill us with your power and your love and your hope. And I pray that we would uh, be imitators of your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.